The presenting sponsor for Ego Check with the NDM is RPG Research. RPG Research is a 501c3 research and human services nonprofit, 100% volunteer-run organization. They openly share and work with individuals and organizations from many areas of interest with the overall goal of improving the human condition through cooperative experiential learning programs using music and games. You can find out more information about RPG Research at rpgresearch.com. Once again, that's rpgresearch.com. of Ego Check with the IDM. I'm your host, Michael Mallon, and joining me this week is Dr. Ryan Kelly. Ryan is a psychologist, and he graduated from the University of South Carolina. He has been involved in combining psychology with geek passions for a good 10 years now, I believe, and he is an award-winning researcher, college instructor, has been an author for the website Shrink Tank, which you might have seen in the past, uh, co-author of Max Gamer, a comic book that we'll discuss here, and is involved in a lot of other endeavors, including Geeks Like Us. So I'm very excited to have Ryan on the show. Welcome. Yeah, thank you. Awesome to be here. And I would be remiss if I didn't say publicly thank you for the lovely musical stylings earlier in the year that made it onto a recent podcast. You're, you're welcome. Um, I want you to know that I've not trademarked the name Michael Malinda. So if you want to change your time. name to that, there's time. It's yours if you want it. But only for a little while because then I'll take it. So if for some reason you didn't hear my recent uh, episode with uh, the folks from Game to Grow talking about the Critical Core oh, nice. role-playing game, uh, at the end of that episode I had tagged on Dr. Kelly's performance of that song – in my honor, which you really should do yourself a favor and listen to. You sent me that back in January, and I just remember writing you back, like, I don't know what to say. <laughs> yeah, I guess it was. Yeah, Pax, Pax South. And I guess Adam Johns from Game to Grow was the drummer. He did a yes. He did an awesome job. And I, and I really, I had sort of been like, hey, uh, you want to do this thing with me? I wanted to get a lot of people to do it. And he was hesitant because he's kind of learning the drums, but he, he was a really cool guy. He's like, sure. And uh, we went in because uh, I think he, uh, he was more comfortable with the idea of practicing. And so we go in to, so he can look at the setup and doing everything. And actually, so that was the first go. We didn't even practice. People were kind of laughing as we're like figuring out the stuff. And it was like, Adam, do you just want to do it now instead of waiting for all of our buddies? We're going to do and, it live. Uh, yeah. Is, <laughs> gonna, yeah, right. And so he was like, sure. So there was a handful of us PAX folk there. Who, uh, who you know, of course, but uh, a few of them, Adam Davis, Adam Johns, Tony Bean. But, uh, yeah, of course, you requested grunge, uh, so I had to – Malandale! I mean, I had to – And had grunge to do is what I got. That's what you got. I got to turn into Metallica for a little bit there, admittedly. But uh, they're close. Those are close to one another anyway. So welcome. Thank you once again for your time today. I'm excited to talk with you because you, mm -hmm. you have your hands in a lot of – different uh, realms of geekdom, for lack of a better word. And as yeah. we were talking, getting, getting ready for this discussion, one of the things you mentioned that, that you've kind of steered your career into is how to use geek passions to grow. 
how to help people in your clinical work, how mm-hmm. to uh, help them move forward with some of these hobbies and interests that they might have. So when did that start? When did you start taking things in that direction? So I first interned at a practice when I was 18 called Southeast Psych here in Charlotte, North Carolina. And they were they were the first people I ever knew doing any sort of geek therapy type of thing. Um, so we're talking 2003, 2002, 2003-ish, where they would play video games with clients and had superhero posters everywhere and mannequins with, you know, replica Vader costumes and Batman. And uh, it was an amazing site. Dave Verhagen uh, and Frank Askell were the, the co-founders. And they introduced me to this idea. And I've always had um, geeky interests, but that's that would have been the seed, I suppose, when I saw what it could be, what it could be capable of, what what potential it had. Um, for me personally, it probably started with Max Gamer. Um, I had um, done some research in college that was geek related, like contacting Blizzard um, to try to get information on um, communications between guilds okay. and if they improve their ability, if they improve face to face. So I had the idea of doing research on related stuff. But in 2008, I graduated 2008 to 2009. I worked with Dr. Frank Gaskell on Max Gamer, and that's the, it was it's actually the first uh, published Aspie superhero, uh, and it's a comic book. And it's a strength-based book where it's like, how do we take this geeky medium of comic books um, and then within the story, the geeky medium of video game playing and use it to draw out the strengths of kiddos on, this, on the spectrum, specifically high-functioning. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where it started. And then it just sort of, it kept going. I mean, I did Reese, you know, to even make that book, uh, we wanted to build it on their special interest area. So I did a lot of, um, surveys there. And then it turned into research in grad school where I studied how to uh, incorporate special interest areas and video games, uh, to improve social skill development in groups of Aspies. Um, and all along the way have just kind of, like you said, just dipped my hand into a number of areas, um, which has culminated into the product of geeks like us. And when you say the term Aspie, just so everyone's on the same page, what do you mean by that? Um, Asperger's. So um, it's not in the uh, DSM-5 where we get a lot of our diagnoses uh, anymore. It's been collapsed into autism spectrum uh, disorder. I don't think of it as a disorder. I don't think of it as a a syndrome. Many of us don't. Um, But Aspie's is an endearing term for high-functioning autism. Um, And, um, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you said you also turned that into Geeks Like Us. So when, when did that get rolling? So Geeks Like Us, uh, it was probably two years ago. Uh, I, I'm now working at Southeast Psych. I have a practice there, and I work with Dr. Megan Connell, who, of course, you know. Yes, former guest on the show. Yes, that's right. And, um, you know, at the time, I had uh, – my research had led me to Dungeons & Dragons. I didn't really play it much. But again, a big interest of mine is how to use special interest in geek mediums to improve therapeutic intervention. And it had naturally led me to Dungeons and Dragons. And she played Dungeons and Dragons. Um, and I wanted to do research because there's still not a published study to show that D&D empirically in a clinical study um, can improve whatever you're doing. Also, it would be social skills. Um, but we started talking about that and using these things and started to really, um, meet a lot of great people like Dr. B and the game to grow folk and so on. And, um, while this happened, started to come up with like, you know what, 
the thing that makes us so wonderful is the inclusive community and people sharing their passions and finding ways to turn it into productive action. And we sort of said, why don't, why don't we take all of this and condense it into what's essentially a media company that will have nonprofit components, um, which became Geeks Like Us. And then so as we, we do panels very often at uh, gaming conventions and comic conventions, and we started to promote this and with a website and YouTube and uh, Megan's Psychology at the Table, and um, it just turned into this thing. So now we actually have our website launched, and we've got some initiatives that we're very excited about and producing more uh, media content. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of our focus lately. So I know she is running the clinical role D&D &D <laughs> group, and what else is uh, going on through Geeks Like Us right now? So uh, the two things Megan does primarily, she does a phenomenal job, um, is clinical role and um, psych at the table. Psychology at the table, I know you know this, but I'll say it is um, as a psychologist and as a D&D &D player, she provides advice on how for, for dungeon masters and players on how to make their games better when they may have individuals with ADHD or Asperger's or want to better understand group dynamics or how to empower women, whatever the issue may be, psychology at the table. Um, on our website, a lot of the things we uh, post are things by fellow colleagues like Dr. Jamie Madigan um, or things that we originally create or aggregate that basically uh, showcase geek passion, um, geek productivity, and provide content that, that makes geeks feel supported and know how to hone their, their skills. Um, other video content um, are panels. Um, Megan will be paneling more. I've been our, our lead panelist lately, um, traveling around the nation to do maybe five to six panels at each convention, talking about empowering gamers or how to use superheroes in therapy. So a lot of those... Um, and new content that will be going up aside from reviews and here and there things. I'll be doing th something called Psych-Fi, where I basically take fun things like the neuropsychology of The Walking Dead, and I break it down uh, based on the comics and the shows about, no, they actually do have more than their spine, spinal cord and pons and midbrain. They actually show some higher cortical functioning and having some cool um, stuff around that. Or can you tranquilize the Hulk? How do you tranquilize the Hulk? That's how it all starts. You do this research and then, you know, sooner it's, or later, it's zombie apocalypse. It's re right, right. It's really just a, again, I think we get this passion for our, our geek interest. And this is just an example of I was going somewhere with it, Michael, and uh, and, I, and this is the most productive way I can think about using it, aside from you know getting very angry on Reddit when someone says that Raiden's uh, from Metal Gear Solid Sword can uh, cut through uh, Wolverine, which is not not true, Michael. <laughs> there are facts, and these facts are important. It's, it's that's, that's right. That's right. Um, yeah. So you mentioned D&D. That's certainly something that I have been passionate about over the last uh, mm -hmm. close to 10 years. I've been writing about it. I've uh, been certainly spending a lot of time playing games when I, when I can manage the time here. Mm -hmm. and, and one of the topics I thought would be interesting to talk about with you is this idea of a hobby like Dungeons & Dragons can certainly be something that is productive. There are things oh, we can yeah. learn from it. Uh, so there's a lot of people out there who are using tabletop role-playing games 
to teach skills, teach social skills mm -hmm. to different uh, types of individuals. And hobbies also can have a, a negative side potentially where they can be isolating or they can maybe suck up too much time in a negative way. How do you work with that in your professional role? So um, I would say twofold. One is, uh, as you kind of mentioned, is how do we use these things in our own therapeutic practice? Um, so Megan uses D&D a lot for female empowerment. Um, I use it almost exclusively for social skill development. Uh, the Adams over a game to grow use it for Lord everything. Um, they're, they're, they're just amazing at what they do. But so that'd be one is how do we use it in practice? And, and specifically, how would evidence suggest it could be used effectively? And then how do we create more evidence to say how and how it does not work? So that's one part. And then the other is, you know, when we've got these amazing, absolutely wonderful, passionate, focused people, uh, geeks who come in who are feeling rejected or, or being told by those in their environment that what they're doing is wrong or pathological or lame, or they need to get a different interest or whatever. How do we get them to be proud of their interests, but also use it productively? Because, I mean, there is, there is a difference. These, these are all just tools like anything else. So although they can be incredibly powerful, and that's why we speak to this very often. Yeah, like anything else, they can, they can be a avoidant coping tool where we stop doing homework or we, you know, let our ambitions uh, dwindle or um, interfere with relationships and trying to find a way to, to harness that for good. Yeah. And what are some of the things that you look for in terms of warning signs when it's skewing one way and maybe the not so great way? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I'll, I'll stick with video games because that's the one I speak to a lot these days. And I think that's uh, that's the one that's probably been pathologized the most lately, especially with um, the World Health Organization um, uh, adopting it as its own um, specific addiction, I suppose. And soon thereafter, when the World Health Organization came out, we all gathered to do a yes, roundtable on that. That was <laughs> about a year ago, I think. It was. It's so fun. And it's so fun when you gather as a group of geeky psychologists because everyone knows what they're thinking at those like, and my axe. You know, it's like, <laughs> no, it's not, it's not like, hello, doctor, doctor. It's like, hello, Gimli. Yes. Legolas. Are we all here to complete this mission? Uh, with a similar vigor, I, I like to think. Um, but yeah, you're right that the, I think video games over the course of the last, really, it feels like 15, 20 years. There has been studies, which I'm using air quotes sometimes, with those about talking about the violence in video games, how that affects people. Mm -hmm. um, there's quite a bit of stigma about video games. So you were about to launch into that. So so go ahead. So it's yeah, I mean, you know, this has been much like the radio when it came out or the TV when it came out. Uh, video games have been getting crushed for a while. I remember uh, when Street Fighter 2 and uh, Mortal Kombat came out on Sega, I was around nine and I remember, you know, my mother watching a news segment that it was going to make murderers. And, of course, she came up right as I was raiding, punching my brother into the pit because we'd taken the blood mode on. You know, we turned it on. So that was bad timing. Of course. It's right, really bad timing. Hard to argue with your mom on that one. Um, but I remember that. And then throughout the years, yes, there's been research that 
operationalizes things like violence really poorly, um, define violence really poorly, where they're like, okay, so we'll call violence uh, if you maybe use aggressive words or uh, if you respond to aggressive words in a certain way. And they just loosely refer to it as violence. And the media takes off with it and says, this is why the Sandy Hook killer did what he did, video games. Um, now, there have been a lot of studies to show how it's good. I'll say in general, a lot of the research is not so great. Um, it's hard to create methods to get uh, uh, good studies, to have people know what they're doing. Um, so that's that's a realm we're really trying to figure out. Um, on our end, uh, we've created a uh, module, Dr. Megan Canal and I, for D&D, that we can both pass with 80% fidelity, uh, where we're basically meaning we're doing it the same when we deliver it, so that we can create an experimental controlled study to show does it or does it does it not help for D&D. But um, with video games, yeah, the, the, it's taken a huge hit lately because of it literally being pathologized, uh, literally turned into a disorder, gaming disorder. Um, you know, again, gaming can be problematic, but rush the gun a bit on that one. So it's it's definitely causing uh, quite a fuss and asking people, well, then what do we do? So to, for an incredibly long-winded way to answer your question, um, you know, the way I like to think of it is you have certain domains of life. Um, for kids, usually the ones that I are coming to my office, you have school and friendships, family interactions, well-being, physical health, mental health, um, you know, again, all these uh, areas that make up who we are that we could hopefully be growing in and flourishing in. And I'm just imagining all these stat bars for those things. That's exactly yeah, how it's. Because I, I grew up with video games. This is yeah. how my brain works. Absolutely. Absolutely it is. And, um, you know, it's it's something where, um, which, again, is a good way of showing how video games can help people conceptualize things because um, I think of it the same way. But um, the idea is if video games are interfering with those, if if I don't want to join an extracurricular group because I just want to play games and if I'm not getting off my games without lying, stealing, cheating, screaming, having whatever, because I I play video games almost exclusively to avoid deep feelings of anxiety or depression or exclusion and it's my only coping tool and I'm not getting my homework done because I just want to play games and all the yeah it's it's problematic we, we don't have to act like gaming can never be a problem sure it's it's certainly problematic um you know that that's and again I know I'm using gaming these they all differ but if it's in if it's if it's largely unproductive versus productive, and we can talk about the difference between that. And if it interferes with these other areas of growth, it's starting to become problematic. Yeah, I think that's a, a good um, description there, mm -hmm. where you're talking about coping strategies and how we're spending our time. So if you have something that is taking up a big chunk of time, and it's starting to negatively impact other areas of your life, regardless of what that thing is, that thing's likely becoming a problem. Right. And that thing could be playing Fortnite way too much. Mm -hmm. It could be building model trucks. It could be... <laughs> it could be exercising. It could be exercise. It could be sports. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, It could I, be sports. I think about conversations I've had with other family and friends where the amount of time their children are being driven all over the place for different sporting events, it seems like it's, it's not healthy. 
in terms of that demand. And I realize that's a little bit of a different conversation. Sure. Um, yeah. But the whole like youth sports and how serious people seem to take that and the amount of time it takes away from like being at the house, being together as a family unit, like I don't know, there's a there's a conversation to be had there too. But yeah, if mm-hmm. I th- I think with getting back to video games, if if you're doing something and the function of it is to alleviate stress from somewhere else and there's no other function for it and it's being done all the time, then that's likely something that's a concern. Yeah, and I think just a, and a key phrase there that you said is there's no other one. It's not a problem coming home and you know, crushing some apex for an hour, you know, to, to decompress. But like you said, if, if, you know, if there's ever, if we ever only have one coping skill, that's a problem. Yeah. And how have these conversations gone with uh, the people that you've been working with over the years? Are, are folks receptive to exploring the function of these activities or do they just see it as a positive in their life? Um, you know, it's, so I see a lot of uh, kids and adolescents primarily for this. Um, parents have to come around, but they almost always do. Um, and kids, they also have to come around because a lot of the times, you know, when I'm seeing them, um, it is a problem. Uh, they have, they are using it as an escape and spent $800 of V bucks uh, by stealing a credit card or through a safe that had, you know, the cords and stuff because it couldn't be trusted and it off the roof to try to break it open. I mean, there are some, some, you know, fairly shocking ways that kids where that's their only thing, um, try to get it. They're the ones I think usually that it's a little tougher because quite frankly, by the time I'm seeing them, it's, it's kind of been enabled for years, right? Um, parents not condemning them at all. They don't want to pick the fight anymore. And so then when they, they sort of, they only do it when they've had it and then it's a screaming match and they give up again. And, you know, these kids are kids. So like anything else, they need, you know, guidelines a lot of the time and parents to be like, we got to get our homework done first or whatever. Um, so, you know, they, they do come around. I think it helps when I say, look, I, I present at gaming conventions. I've got an Xbox and, my, and a switch in my office. The first day I meet them, we're playing video games to build rapport and to, to try to have them understand me and me understand them. So they, they trust me, but it is hard. I'm saying, Hey, look, I'm taking for these kids in particular. I'm saying, Hey, look, I'm taking away this thing that makes you feel safe. Um, and not have to think about how anxiety, anxious you are or depressed or isolated. And I'm going to take that away and slowly replace it with these other things that, that could help you. It's, it's not a very fair request at the beginning. Yeah. And you mentioned that there are games designed in a way to attract people's attention. Um, I, I, I hesitate to use the word uh, addict people. Sure. I think that word gets, gets tossed about too, too often. Um, but games are, I just think of them as learning machines. I, I've used another um, podcast, this idea of a Skinner box, which if you've never heard of that, you can go Google it. But it's this, I mean, games teach you different behaviors. Any game you play is teaching you how to play it, teaching you how systems work, and you learn those behaviors. And then there's some reinforcement that's involved where it gives you a reward for doing things in a certain way. And games have become much more manipulative, I would say, as a word. Yeah. Um, but it's like they're getting smarter about how to go about doing that. And yeah, they are. 
that becomes a concern when games are designed to lure you in to take up more of your time, more of your resources, either in the game or financial resources. Mm-hmm. And for people who are under the age of 18 or even, you know, well below that age, they might not have the reasoning skills to get out of that or to understand what's happening. So what are your thoughts about that and how have you seen that develop over the last five years? <clears throat> yeah. I mean, it's, I agree with you. Um, you know, I would say how problematic a game can be largely depends on the game. Um, you know, Fortnite has really drew a lot of attention as far as from like a behavioral management standpoint, it's genius. I mean, the gamification of that, meaning, you know, how often to reinforce you with a new season or new weapon, uh, how often to reinforce you with like a better kill to death ratio, um, by buffing certain things that, Players who are not very good use and nerfing things that good players use so that all of a sudden, you know, kids who normally don't get kills are like, oh, my gosh, I'm getting kills now. So I'm like, let me get in this. I'm getting better. I'm getting more of a sense of mastery like they they have really capitalized on that. They're, I mean, it's and again, it, <laughs> this is maybe the silver lining of that. We can learn a lot from how Fortnite operation uh, operantly conditions people. Um, they do a fantastic job. But like you said. When when kiddos lack the frontal lobe development to regulate it on their own, um, it it can be a problem. Some kids are at risk where it gets it gets carried away. Um, again, I, I also very careful about using the word uh, addiction. I to be quite honest with you, and this is not a popular opinion in our field, but I think sometimes. For certain kids, I do see it very similar to addiction, um, you know, for, for these certain kids in these moments. So I was just talking about and – and I think game companies have even – maybe even hired, like, mental health staff, psychologists, and mm-hmm. um, about – like, an example, like loot boxes and these things like that, sure. where they almost seem purposely manipulative right. to, to hook in people's attention. Um right. And I guess the overall vibe of do you think games are going in a direction that's more harmful than they have been or it's sort of the same as it always was? I think that I think of a good way to answer that. I think that games are becoming more and more immersive. I think we are going more and more to kind of like a ready player one situation where they are becoming in more and more powerful. Like you said, it's a tool, right? So, you know, the something I say sometimes is, you know, with this powerful tool, like, uh, like nuclear fission, for example, it can either be the catalyst of, of uh, perpetual energy or it could create an, an atom bomb. Um, it's just powerful. That's it. And it depends on the hands that it's in. So is, can, is it becoming more and more problematic potentially? I would say yes. Is it also becoming more and more powerful to help kids and to connect kids and to increase cognitive development? And then I, you know, then I would say to be able to understand ourselves, to play, you know, role playing games and identify who we are. And I mean, all these wonderful things, I would say yes to both. 
Yeah, it, it seems inc- you bring up the power level, just how mm-hmm. quick these things are happening. In a recent interview I did with someone who created a game and the game sort of learns how the player is responding and mm-hmm. the plot develops in different ways. And, and my thought is going forward, sooner or later, you're going to have these games where 10 different people are playing the game, but they're playing a different game about oh, yeah. a month and a half in because the, games, because the game is adapting to the player. And I, I think that's the direction we're going into. Which is really fascinating and also a little terrifying. <laughs> it is. Well, I think we're rapidly on both sides trying to have our humanity keep up with our technology here. And I think we it's hard to keep up. Um, and I think with, with video games, you got people saying get rid of them. And then you got some others, even in our field, to be quite honest, who are like, there's no problem with them or very, very much belittling the problem with them. Um, and because we're both kind of blind on this one, um, we're trying to set guidelines and it's, it's very, very difficult. Um, so I think that's, that's a lot of our focus these days in this, um, gaming therapy world that we live in. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, if you, have you, have you done an interview with Dr. Jessica Stone? I have not. She'd be a great one to connect with. Um, the reason I think about that is we're, we're about to launch our virtual reality room. Um, you know, it's, it's being used in therapy a lot, VR. And certainly that's the next medium coming up here. And um, it's incredibly immersive. It's incredibly powerful for exposure therapy to help people get over their fears. Um, but let me give you uh, – uh, and Jessica Stone does uh, – creates – a virtual sandbox uh, for play therapy. She's phenomenal. You, you should definitely uh, look into her, but um, I'll give you an example of the power of it. It's if I got someone who's afraid of heights, I have a third party app in VR uh, that has a systematic desensitization uh, platform. Meaning if someone's afraid of heights, I get them to put on this uh, HT Vive and I can slowly have them in an interactive, they look everywhere where they're on top of a building in the middle of it, but not near the edge. And they can slowly walk towards the edge at their own comfort, using cognitive tools to help fight those those fears with facts, using their deep breathing methods to calm their body as they get close to try to pair, um, you know, this what's now a, a phobia with a sense of calm and comfort. And they can stack it more and more to the point where the last thing they do, they can even jump off that building, feel the, you know, the wind or the sound of increase as they're going and being able to that that doesn't scare them anymore. Here's the problem with that. Well, no, not the problem. Here's here's the other side. It could potentially traumatize somebody because the brain is kind of an idiot. It, it thinks, oh, we're getting used to being up high and it doesn't understand the difference. We do, but our brain doesn't. That's why. You know, if you were in a VR and if you've ever done it and jumped off a building in a heights program, you get really scared. <laughs> you know, you feel a jolt of adrenaline. It's it's fascinating, really. But you can imagine if we've got a video game that's a war based video game, how are we going to prevent people from getting PTSD from being involved in war, especially if they're feeling uh, pain as it's going on? Or, um, I mean, it's it's as kind of a cool example of what we're trying to have to figure out. And the power of it is it can be so wonderful and get someone over fear or it could accidentally cause trauma in this hypothetical that we're speaking about. It's, it's fascinating. I mean, you talk about exposure therapy in, in my line of work, you know, I do quite a, a bit of that as well of gradually 
getting closer and closer to this thing that is fearful. Uh, so mm-hmm. it could be heights, it could be spiders, it could be a traumatic event in, mm-hmm. or traumatic events uh, mm-hmm. in, in one's past. And, uh, you know, games, uh, virtual reality certainly has been a tool that's been used for mm-hmm. quite a long time mm-hmm. in that in that area. And then thinking ahead in 10, 15 years, how powerful is virtual reality going to be and how ubiquitous is it going to be? It's fascinating. Yeah, it's, it really is. And as much as I would love to say we could just use the Ready Player One thing of no one play on Tuesdays. Otherwise, it's all good. <laughs> probably yeah. probably going to have to have a more nuanced uh, network of regulations for how to make it good or bad. You know, And that's yeah. tough. Yeah, I, I just think nuance is a word that seems to be going away, yeah. Yeah, especially yeah. with social media, with just the way media works. It's like, well, video games are good or bad. Role-playing games are good or bad. Or, and there's, it's hard to have a middle ground. And I think often the facts and the truth sort of lead to more of a middle ground approach where, yeah, you need to set some limits. And I think just with my son, who's getting near, you know, the age where screen time's a factor and yeah. we're setting limits with him. Yeah. You know, it's not like, well, this, these are a great tool and there's all these educational apps and this is awesome. But at the same mm-hmm. time, like we want them to be outside and mm-hmm. go, go do things. Everyone has to figure out what that balance is. And I think there should be some guidelines based on research and actual you know, things that we can prove to educate people on what to do there. I mean, you're absolutely right. I've got a kid in a similar age. Um, and he's a kid who is a little at risk of, of uh, having problematic uh, screen use. But, yeah, I mean, it's hard. And I think, as you know, I mean, the more um, emotional investment somebody has uh, in facts, the more likely those facts will turn into a belief. And I think we love video games, so we are at risk of having a confirmation bias where we want to collect information to say it's always good. And we belittle studies that say, yeah, maybe there actually is a problem in this capacity. And the media leans towards um, pathologizing it, so they do the opposite. They look for confirmation that games can be terrible and harmful, and they don't really purport um, the good stuff about gaming. And you're left with this this dichotomy of people in our field who only talk about positive research and people on the other side who only talk about negative research, and you have very, very little middle ground of people just non-biasedly presenting facts. And even with facts, it's non-biasedly operationalizing research so that the facts actually mean what they're saying. Again, if I, if, I, if I do a study and I have a fact that it causes violence, well, all right. But then if I look in the study and see how they defined violence, well, that's not harming anybody physically. That's uh, being aggressive for 20 minutes after playing a first-person shooter and then it fairly much, pretty much going away. That's why in the world would I use that as it, it causes violence on a system scale when making policy. That seems really, really stupid. But so it's hard not to, you know, it's hard to even have unbiased facts, which makes all this very difficult because everyone's emotionally invested. Yeah, and I think now you have people like, you know, you who are have grown up with various entertainment systems over the years mm-hmm. uh atari nintendo sega you know go all down the line playstation xbox uh it's quite the lineage mm-hmm. and now 
you're in a position to be a leader or making these decisions and trying to educate folks about this. Whereas mm -hmm. before those individuals didn't grow up with that experience. Um, and then the people behind us who are even younger are going to have even a different set of expectations and experience with games. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it does seem like it's maybe going, going to change in terms of the conversations that, that we're having. Oh, I hope so. Michael Malinda. <laughs> it's, I, I'm a little, I, I you know, you're seeing a man who's exhausted. I'm, <laughs> I mean, I'm sensing some weariness in your voice. Yes. It, it's, um, you know, for me, I, I, my main initiative lately has seemed to, although at panels I'm promoting gaming use and everything, um, my main injury lately is, is trying to figure out how to disseminate facts in a way that people will hear. And being a source of facts that people can trust. And I think with all the great intentions, most people are not – a lot of people are not that. I won't say most oh, – I do think most people. Um, where, again, if, if, if I see all the good in gaming and I'm only reporting uh, good gaming research very biasly and I'm putting sensationalized articles – uh, online to say that maybe uh, gaming is no more harmful than a potato and, you know, presenting it to laymen that they'll read that, right? They'll be like, oh, I guess there's no problems with it. To try to compensate for this media that says it, it's the reason Sandy Hook happens. Um, people are just going to go to whatever they feel. The, the, the only thing that that's going to do is people who like gaming will listen to the positive guy. People who have fear of gaming, like parents, are going to go to the one that sort of says your fear is valid. And I get exhausted at the thought of like, how in the world, and it's like anything, politics, anything these days, how in the world are we going to create a source in the middle? I think geeks like us, that is a huge part of what we want to do is try to avoid sensationalized, um, even when we present positive stuff to do what we would do in a peer review study to uh, also report the limitations of why this study that says it's really good here is the fact of like you know trying to in a very layman way say here's the exact finding not gamings are great but on this measure of visual spatial skills we saw for these kids that it improved limitation uh this is a correlational study not longitudinal so we can't say that it causes gains but it it implicates it so let's keep let's keep looking and it's it's exhausting because it's really hard to play a middleman ever, right? Because right. you either wind up upsetting the people who are afraid of it or, you know, offending people who are, have such great intentions, um, who about the positive use of gaming, um, who are kind of in your, on your side. Cause that's, that's, you know, that's, I guess if I have a side, that's my side, you know, so it's tiring. To, to be fair, I work with great people like yourself and Tony and um, Sarah Hayes and Chelsea Marie and, and Megan and all these that game to grow folk, all these phenomenal people who do a really good job at checking their bias um, and really trying to stick to facts, um, which is refreshing. And to, to go to panels with these people is it's a breath of fresh air. But yeah, and I, I think about my own work and one of the things that I'll, I'll talk about with the 
clients or patients that I meet with is, you know, if they're having these um, emotions, these thoughts that are interfering in their life, you know, depression, anxiety, these things that get in the way. Mm-hmm. One of the things to talk about is like, well, what what can you get back to that is a pleasant experience? How can you start to engage more in life? Mm-hmm. And if one of the things they really care deeply about is is gaming, that gaming can be, depending on what kind of gamer you're talking about, it can be mm-hmm. a, a sense of community. It can be something that gets you out of the house. It can also be something that isolates you. You can. And I think that is something that is we should just be not only aware of, but realize that there's there's two sides to it. And like you said, mm-hmm. you don't you don't want to be it seems like you don't want to be a cheerleader for games are great. Games are awesome a hundred percent of the time. And you right. also don't want to be the, you know, games are terrible. We need to put safeguards on this a hundred percent of the time. It's somewhere in the middle. Right. And I think when it's in the middle, then we have to have a mediated discussion. And I think it's really hard to find, you know, that middle of the field where Jon Snow and, uh, it's sorry, obviously I'm getting ready for the episode tonight. Yeah. Um, yeah. We're recording on a Sunday, everyone. So the battle of Winterfell is tonight. No spoilers. But, uh, yeah. Well, and I feel like, um, and I really do think of it this way too. Uh, it's almost like, and, and admittedly, even I view it this way. It's like we're, we, we are struggling to find our middle field where us, Jon Snow, <laughs> basically hundred percent, awesome, nice person, good intention guy. And I, we do think of ourselves that way. Um, you know, you can't help it. And then meeting the Ramsay, who sometimes we do think of the media sometimes as like this, you know, evil, uninformed. But I feel like we're, we're just – a big thing we need to do is try to find a way to meet in the middle to actually have a dialogue and actually be able to say, like you said – here are the good things. Here are the bad things. Here are our ways. I mean, here should be the discussion, Michael. How do we use games for good? And how do we avoid games being problematic? What can we do to make sure they're not problematic? But instead, we're focusing on they're an addiction or they're, they're nothing. And that's just the wrong question. If it's, is it good or bad? It's, it's neither. How do we use it for good? How do we make sure it doesn't become a problem? So for the people listening and uh, like myself mm-hmm. included, mm-hmm. I attempt to play games as a source of enjoyment, as a source of community, sometimes as a source of just, I need to zone out for an hour. <laughs> I'm going to hop on a horse and play Red Dead Redemption for an hour before bed. Cause I just, that's what I want to do. Um, what, what are the best ways to use games? Um, like personally? Yeah. Oh, gosh. I mean, it's up to you. I think for me, I use it. What's the best way to make those decisions or to monitor those decisions, if that makes sense? Oh, I see. I mean, if it's if you're getting something good out of it, great. Um, I, I, I think it's easier to talk about how to make sure it's not a problem. I hate to do it that way, but I think that's that's fine. Is that is that so it's um, if when you play. You are getting a sense of catharsis, relaxation. You're connecting with friends. You're learning about yourself. You're having fun. Do it. Don't let anybody tell you not to do that. That's great. But if it's so great that you're finding you're procrastinating on work or you're not playing with your kids or you're not uh, exercising when you're like, I really should, 
or um, you find that you're thinking about too much, or if you're like the guy throwing your remote at the TV, you know, it's, yeah, it, it, you, you got to take a step back and say, is this, is this what I want? Is, do I find this to be helpful? Um, you know, I, I think, you know, you do have people that use it to flourish and become amazing. And there are a certain percentage. And then you do have people where it's, there are people that, yeah, like that kid of mine who, you know, we had to put things in a safe for a while, like a switch and cords because he couldn't be trusted. And we had to he just had to earn it to do his homework to get it right. Mm-hmm. And that was so hard for him at that point that he he would spend all of his time trying to find like ways to engage in conduct problems to get it. And he eventually wound up taking the finding the safe when his parents were at home and throwing it off the roof, breaking everything in there. The Nintendo Switch survived. Barely. And then lying to his parents, they did it. So like it's it's again, that's I don't mean for someone to catch that and run with it and say, here, it's an addiction. But there is a small percentage of at risk at risk youth largely who have Asperger's or ADHD or anxiety, largely who have life is very hard, can be very scary where it can be a big problem. But most people are in the middle and most of the time it's going to look like, you know, your significant other wants to talk to you and you're not putting the game down. Or you're staying up till one in the morning and really you wanted to get to bed at 11. So the next day at school or work, you're not as good of a student or, or employee, um, little things. And you have to decide, you know, where, where do you want that to, when do you see that as problematic? Finding a balance is absolutely sometimes a challenge. And when a game is new or has some type of mechanic that is mm-hmm. designed to take up more and more of your time, those are questions that I've just... <laughs> I, I've fallen off the balance beam at times. Let's just say that there's been times it happens where played uh, different games for too late, and I, mm-hmm. I think it's just having that awareness and being able to get yourself out of that, as opposed to continuing to make maybe if you want to call them errors or mistakes or. Sure decisions that set you up to not do so well in other facets of your life, whether it's work or school, family, friends. Well, and that's a good way to say it is awareness. Just, just play proactively, right? Just play with a purpose and be aware of its effects on you, good or bad. Um, actually, we have one segment I'm, I'm going to be on our Twitch. I'll be doing something soon with Chelsea Marie. She's a phenomenal psychologist. She's a statistician for Riot Games and does it works a lot with League of Legends. Um, but she and I will be playing what is called Proactive Gamer or Pro-Social Gamer. And it's, it's basically we're going to be playing largely Apex at first, but basically trying to get really toxic players and being just super nice to them to see if we reduce the frequency of their toxic comments and gameplay and see if we increase the frequency of pro pro social comments and gameplay of like here, you know, you can have this gun, but it's, again, it's just think of it as like, just be, it can be used. It's a tool. So use it instead of like, I'm like you, Michael, I, I like you say red dead redemption. I'm like, not a game I can play those huge open world games. Unless I can quarantine it to a vacation. Uh, I, I, I have very good willpower, I like to think, but it'll be like, all right, I'm stopping at 11 p.m. And then it's three in the morning and I'm like, damn it. (laughs) So Dark Souls was the one I recently did that with um, and had to, you know, just set 
proactive guidelines so that I don't wind up playing till two or three, an alarm that goes off, a resolve that you have to follow to be like, I have to get off this or I know that this is not good for me. And if I can't get off this in a way that I've decided is healthy for me, then maybe I need to dial it back. So just be aware, like you said, and proactive. Yeah, and with Red Dead 2 now, it's it came out in October. It's now April. I'm still not finished. The oh, game. my God. So I can't. It, it's been going at a very slow pace. And recently I've been like, all right, I'm just going to put in some time and just kind of get through the end of the game, which I thought I did. And then it's like epilogue, chapter one. It's, I was like, oh, no. Oh, my God. How yeah, those long big, does this go on for? Right, those big open-ended, like, uh, I'm a completionist, so the la- I loved Spider-Man recently, because I was able to platinum that fairly fast, right? But when there's no end in sight, I'm kind of in trouble, and that's like a lot of these games now. Um, so I, I admire the people who can do it without having a problem. Yeah, and I've, I've, I've talked about that with some other people from different angles, Mm-hmm. And it seems like more of a thing in recent years than it ever was when I was, you know, in my younger days, where games are designed not to end. Yeah. Where you have games as a service. It's kind of kind of the way I've I've thought of them. Uh, games like Overwatch, League of Legends, Fortnite, uh, mm-hmm. Apex, the game you've mentioned a few times. Mm-hmm. Um, like even in the past, you would play. I, like I would play Madden or Tiger Woods, like those sports games that mm-hmm. you would. You would play a franchise, you could play against friends, and then you could play online if you wanted to, but you knew the next year like a new game was going to come out. Right. Which was sort of meant like, okay, this game I'm going to play for a while, then put away, and then it just sort of goes in the dustbin. Mm-hmm. Now you just have these games where, and now with games you don't even buy a disc, so it's all online, and the game never ends. It just continues right. to update, and there's, I, I can't do that. Like my, I, I, you were talking about games like you can't do, you can't do Red Dead Redemption. I don't think I can do those games that never end because it seems right. like such a time commitment. I will say the one game I do is Hearthstone, but I think of that as a phone game and I don't think of it as a console game. So I can, mm. I can compartmentalize it in my head that way. But yeah, I mean, what, what do you think about those games that just really are designed to always be on and always be going? I mean, they're amazing games. Uh, like, I just know that I personally struggle to stop playing them, right? Like, so not everybody has this. Struggle. They're phenomenal games. But I do think it opens up. Um, I do think it opens up a new problem, a p- new potential problem that old games didn't have. You, you don't just play it, beat it, and end it. Um, it's ongoing, and it's it's again, it's its own world. Um, instead of an arc, it's literally its own world. Um, so they're phenomenal games. Um, I feel like really on this one, I'll, I'll clarify that it can be a problem for some people uh, that close into game, uh, uh, closed, uh, uh, close into games or not. I happen to be one of those people. <laughs> so I just again, but if you can just be proactive about it, um, where you set limitations for yourself and criterion for yourself of when it's when it's a game you can't play. Um, then you'll be fine. It'll be fine. I just know Red Dead. I, I know I technically could do it all, but uh, I've got so many things I'm trying to do, Michael. <laughs> it, it, it'll interfere with my productive leisure time. Well, it, and as, you know, we're, as we're winding down, what are what are the other things that you're busy with? What else you got going on these days? Um, aside from saying yes more than I should. Um, 
Saying no is a very big skill. It is a skill. And I, I used to pride myself on it. Um, lately, I've been I think I have more bandwidth than I can. Uh, but um, I've got some book chapters I'm writing on integrating technology in games, on uh, geek therapy. Um, looking, look, really excited to do our uh, empirical study that we're going to be doing a, a GoFundMe on soon to pay for an IRB um, to look at D&D and finally have a empirical study to say that it helps. I, right there is you just hear a huge bias. I, I, right. It, maybe it doesn't. Maybe we don't study it well, but I'm pretty sure it will. Um, you know, working with, um, of course, geeks like us, doing these panels, which I'm ha- going to have to start slowing down on them and doing one a month lately. I was going to say, it seems like all, all you guys just travel so often to all these <sighs> conventions and conferences, which I'm jealous about. And I just yeah. realized that's a lot of time and effort. And we'd love to have you, but it is. Um, it's, it's incredibly I, rewarding. I, I do want to warn you, I have no musical talent. That makes it even better, Mike. It's <laughs> I would that, that then I more so want you up there with me. That's oh, we no. we I've now decided that every every PAX I go to that has it, I'm going to do something, and uh, you know I don't know what it would be, but maybe followers. I don't know. I've, I'm trying to do Twitter, but uh, you know. How can yeah. people find you online if they do want to interact with you? Okay, um, probably Twitter. I've been told by my co-founder. I'm, need to be most active with. So I am, and I'm getting better at it. So uh, my Twitter handle, um, D-R-R Kelly, um, K-E-L-L-Y. You can reach me. um, And, you know, any content at Geeks Like Us, we are, you know, right now, since we just started it, we have the bandwidth to be very responsive. Um, So if there's an article you're interested in, comment on it. We'll respond back. At our YouTube channel, same, Clinical Role, we you know, Megan is on there, her husband Pat is on there, and I'm sometimes on there that we can even respond. And there's usually 20 to 30 people on the stream. See, they talk to one another. It's, again, that's kind of our whole initiative is, is about this community. So that'd be the best way to get me. I'd be happy to, you know, get involved with whatever, but I know that I might say no if it takes a lot of bandwidth. And so if you Google Geeks Like Us, you'll, you'll likely find it. it the address uh, Geeks, it's uh, two threes. It's yeah. Um, so it can be either. Um, okay. Our our YouTube when we started, uh, there's no formal group or anything that takes geeks like us. But there were a handful of things where they had like a YouTube channel or something. So we started off with threes. We actually like threes. We're actually probably leaning toward just ease. But uh, geeks like us with threes or ease website is where you can find us. But all of our like YouTube, Twitch, everything is with threes. So G three three K S likes us like us. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Well, I very much appreciate your time. I appreciate trying to find a little bit of common or middle ground on some of these discussions. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I think just for the folks listening, if you're listening to this, you're likely uh, very much someone who enjoys games, enjoys some similar uh, geek passions, whether it be the Avengers movie that just came out, which was awesome. Oh my God. Game of Thrones, which is tonight, which has been just fantastic so far this season. It's been a whirlwind. It's been a lot of emotions. I wish I could hold your, I wish you were here so I could hold your hand while we watch it and the other people. Cause it's going to be like red wedding times a thousand. We're, we're hosting some folks tonight. We're, are you really getting some snacks and yeah, we're, we're going to have a, a viewing party here tonight. That's awesome. Um, so, and there's just an example, like if you're doing those things, what is it contributing to your life and what maybe is it taking away? Yeah, and just be aware, 
be aware of when things might start tilting in one direction or the other. Um, and I think for the most part, a lot of these hobbies and interests, whether it's, like I said, sports or building models or playing tabletop games or even video games, it can be beneficial. And there's some things that can be not so beneficial. And that's, that's okay cool. to say that and still be a pro, quote-unquote, gamer. Person. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. You got uh, thank it. You doing so much great work. Will do. You too, pal. Thank you again for listening to the show. If you'd like to find me online, you can reach out to me at the IDM on Twitter. You can also support the podcast by sharing it and also leaving a review on iTunes. Uh, that always helps uh, circulate the show quite a bit more, which is always uh, appreciated. Thanks again, and we'll be back with new episodes this month.